Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday, and Canada's Great War, which releases every single Sunday. You can find both on all podcast platforms. You can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. Find me on Twitter. My handle is C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. My handle is Bairdo37. Today I'm speaking with Carolyn Cox and Tiffany Eilick. They are the ones behind a great new film called Food for the Rest of Us, which is a feature documentary film that presents four stories of people who are leading a revolution to a better world from the ground up. It's an intimate look at the ways marginalized people are using food and farming to liberate themselves from oppression. So we're going to get right to the interview, and we do this a bit differently. I interviewed them separately, so we're going to talk to Tiffany first, and then we're going to talk to Carolyn. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's get right to it. Um, what got you involved with, uh, with, food, for, with uh, food for the rest of us? So Caroline and I started working together um, a few years ago on a TV show called Wild Kitchen. And Caroline, uh, it was her concept um, that she got inspired by working and living uh, off grid outside of Yellowknife, seven hours outside of town, and uh, just really being uh, super in touch with nature and what was seasonal and what was harvestable at the time. And uh, so she had this concept for Wild Kitchen um, to do sort of a traveling show across the Northwest Territories. and. Uh, and she asked me if I would be the host of it. Uh, so that sounded like good fun traveling around to see cool people and eat interesting food. <laughs> so that was <laughs> something right up my alley. Um, and uh, I also have a sort of a wilderness training and adventure tourism background. So it was like a, a really great fit that we started to work together. Um, and then kind of building off the success of that show, we we started to see that um, not only within the following of fans for Wild Kitchen, um, but this sort of like 
outside of the North, this global community of people who do want to be more connected to their food and do want to have land access and, you know, do find it important to um, understand and be a part of their food and how it, it comes to their table. Um, so when we started to get a little bit more immersed into this sort of more um, international and global food community, we started to see that people weren't only using this land connection to feed themselves, but that they were also using it as a very powerful mechanism of change and that people were using food and their access to food and the food production as a form of activism and liberation from um, honestly some some pretty oppressive systems um, that are in place in terms of how we get our food. So we started to see and really understand that um, for the most part, uh, you know, within a capitalist system, food is not an exception to how we, we exploit people and how we um, you know, people try to make as most money they can with the least amount of expenses. And that often has a very um, expensive toll on human life and also on planetary health. So we started to see that um, people, especially young marginalized folks, are the ones who are leading the fight, who are trying to raise awareness and are doing really amazing grassroots work in their own communities. And uh, so that's what inspired us to to look at these communities and see that from the high Arctic and Tuktoyaktuk all the way down through mid mid um, middle America into um, you know Hawaii that uh, the food movement looks completely different in all of these places but at the same time is totally unified and totally coming from the exact same place no matter where people are from they want to get back to their land they want access to healthy food they want a revival of indigenous land use practices and they want to um, uh, inspire equitable um, interaction with within how we how we get our food. So it's, it's that's uh, that's how we got started. <laughs> um, so you, you do cover quite a large geographical area, like you said, up from the Arctic to Hawaii uh, into Kansas City and then Brooklyn. Um, was there something you were specifically looking for when you were looking for the people to to profile? Because again, you also have a wide variety of very interesting people that you look at. Yeah, we were um, you, we were so blessed to um, be able to find these people and these stories. And uh, we did lots of research and lots of outreach. And um, if people you know, were a little too camera shy or if they didn't have time or they didn't feel like they were a good fit to be in the film, everyone we talked to was so, so generous in terms of putting us in touch with people who they who they thought would be really great in the film. So um, yeah, people were so, so generous in like, I'm not a great person for this project, but you know who you should talk to so and so in Kansas City or so and so in, you know, have you heard about Mao organic farm um, in, in Oahu so you know people were so great about putting us in touch with um, with other folks who were similarly, uh, you know, who were like minded. And um, I think what what was really exciting for us was um, a lot of these folks who are doing this work feel quite isolated in the work that they're doing. It can be very focused, it can be super, like hyper local. Um, and so I think people can often feel um, pretty alone and isolated and siloed in, in the work that they're doing. And so when we approached people and, and were explaining about like, okay, well, these are the people who are also in, this, in, in, in our film, this high Arctic, tiny little geodesic greenhouse that's in um, Tuktoyaktuk on the, the Northern, um, you know, on the Arctic Ocean, people, it kind of blew their mind to know that even if they haven't met them, even if, you know, 
they might not ever meet them. Hopefully once COVID, you know, kind of lets us travel, we can have everybody from the film get together. But even if they don't meet them, you know, there's a, there's a kinship and there's a, there's a real affinity um, to know that there are other people in the world um, doing that really great work. So it was kind of fun to be um, kind of reaching out these tendrils of the film as we were doing this research to see who was super excited to be part of it and and who had, um, you know, like a, a pretty badass story that they um, we really felt like we wanted to highlight and lift them up in in the work that they're doing. Was there any particular story from anybody that really kind of stuck with you uh, in the process of making this? Oh, each of them, it's its so completely different and each of them hits a different little part of my heart every time I watch, you know, their segments. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm Inuk, I'm from um, the high Arctic and, uh, you know, that was a beautiful experience to be able to see uh, Inuit on film, you know, we're a majority owned Inuit production company. And it was just really great to be thinking about um, the, the, the possibility that, you know, more Inuit can be involved in the film industry, Inuit portrayals of the high Arctic and Inuit life can be, you know, respectfully portrayed um, that's relational and not exploitive and transactional. Um, so it was just really beautiful to, to be able to see, you know, my homelands depicted um, next to this beautiful lush Hawaiian, you know, tropical paradise. Um, and each, each, each location is cultivating their own little paradise in their own way. So, um, and, and the story, the people, you know, it is about the food, but it is definitely, or sorry, about like how they're, how they're cultivating food and land practice. But at their core, these people are beautiful people who um, are just wanting to do good in the world. And, and that hits different every time. And uh, I'll never get tired of seeing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, as we deal with uh, the, the serious threat of climate change, what role does our disconnect from our food sources play in that? I think it plays a huge um, in a huge role in that because if we, if first of all, if we don't have any connection to the land, if we don't have any connection to nature, a we're not going to notice it when things start to change, and b we're not going to care when we don't have connection to something that we never thought was important or never had in the first place. So I think it's um, you know just on a strictly land-based connection to have access to green space, to have access to wildland is so important because that's how we firsthand will experience the changes that are happening. And in, in a very distressing era of people denying the effects of climate change are mostly people who, you know, live in cities and who live in like really urban centers who frankly, like probably wouldn't notice. But when we see, especially in um, in uh, Inuvik and, and Taktoyaktok that, you know, they have to relocate people from the shore because the ocean is literally swallowing up the land and it's completely changing landscape and their communities are falling into the ocean. And that is, you can't deny that. That is, and that is a direct correlation to, you know, rising sea levels and changes in the weather. New fish and new species are coming up to the high Arctic that were never there before and are kind of, um, they're not native to the area and, you know, if you don't have, a, if you're not a fisher, if you're not a hunter, you don't know that. So you might, you won't notice these warning signs that are all around us. And I feel like um, if, if we want to make a, a big dent in, in sort of turning the tide, if that's even still possible, an important part is for us to 
be more locally minded and to support our local farmers, support local food producers and harvesters, because they're the ones that are um, doing really excellent work feeding our communities and they have the lowest carbon footprint. If we think about the carbon footprint, the cost of the fuel that it takes to ship an avocado from Mexico up to Inuvik, <laughs> you know, simply telling people, well, well, everyone should eat a plant-based diet is not a possibility for everybody. So I think what's really important is to be aware of the diversity of solutions that we have to be reflective of the diversity of the landscapes and the diversity of the people, because that monocrop answers, monoculture answers are not are part of the reasons that we, we are in this mess that we're in. So we need diversity of solutions. We need local, hyper-local solutions that um, these, these folks are doing that we're, we're really trying to highlight. Um, going from one disaster to, to another with uh, COVID-19, uh, what impact has it had on marginalized people uh, and people who maybe don't have access to uh, proper, good, healthy food uh, because maybe where they live or because they just don't have the land to grow it on? COVID has been an incredible force for bringing to light pre-existing inequalities that marginalized people have been speaking about for years. So I feel like covid accentuated everything the good in people the bad in people the greed in people <laughs> you know the barriers that people are facing everything became hyper visible and hyper um kind of accentuated i think during covid and i think something that many of us have experienced was the panic of like we have to go grocery shopping mm -hmm. we have to hoard our food you know, overnight seeing grocery stores picked completely bare, not a roll of toilet paper in sight. Like, you know, when when seeing that people's only source and access of food was grocery stores, we were we were in a pretty bad situation at the beginning of the pandemic because, mm -hmm. you know, there was we overnight we saw how fragile our food systems are and how disconnected we are from the food that we that we on a good day have access to. So we are only, you know, a couple of disasters away from like, where is our food coming from? And mm -hmm. especially in isolated communities like Hawaii or the high Arctic, um, if, if uh, mainstream, uh, sorry, if commercial um, shipping uh, and imports to Hawaii of food, if there was a natural disaster and if those stopped, the uh, something like in, in 10 to 12 days, Hawaii wouldn't have any food if they're only dependent on 70% dependent on imports for their, their food uh, supply, you know, one or two bad things happen. And, you know, where, where are we getting that food from? Same in the Arctic. A lot of these communities are um, uh, sort of landlocked and don't have a highway access to them. So everything is either barged in or flown up. And, you know, the bad weather can be, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a, a pretty tricky thing to navigate, especially in the shoulder seasons. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, only having one source of food is is uh, is pretty tricky, especially when you're dependent on an outside source for that. So I think the pandemic really, really highlighted our our need um, globally to be a bit more local in, in how we're feeding ourselves. And, you know, everybody was making bread and, it, you know, sourdough <laughs> was a thing and everybody was sprouting their little celery on their windowsills and things like that. And those are small things, but they're important to feel like secure and um, able to feed ourselves that we we need to know where this food comes from. And if we don't have access to local food, we better get on that pretty darn quick. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, in the, in the uh, release that I was sent, you had a really good quote, um, food is medicine, food is politics, and now food is activism. Can you tell me a bit about what you mean by that? So I think that, you know, 
food for our health. You know, that was, was it Aristotle who first said that, that food is medicine? Um, or the first white guy to say that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, this notion that um, a food as, as medicine, almost as a preventative, like how are we, how, what's the, what's the how our bodies of food that we're putting into it and, um, you know, recently, I don't know if you've heard the the sort of the funny joke news about Buttergate and <laughs> how all of a sudden everyone's like, has anyone else noticed that their butter is like not as soft at room temperature anymore? And people started to look into it and lo and behold, there's apparently people are introducing more palm oil into cow feed so that it's producing more butter because everybody's at home baking bread and, you know, that it's like, you know, less healthy than, than just like straight up butter would be because it's full of, you know, palm oil and it's horrible for us and for the environment and you know little things like that where it's it's um you know food is medicine it's delicious it's like it's uh enjoying food together is a type of medicine when you're coming together and and breaking bread or or you know um being in community with each other laughing as we eat you know all of those things are are medicine to your heart and your soul and your body um and you know if we we food doesn't exist in a vacuum where we get it um is can is extremely political and it's not just an innocuous you know piece of food if you if you sort of follow the footprints of who is connected to that piece of food that you're having on your your toast or who who is connected what is the human cost are they being paid a fair wage is this essentially you know modern day slave labor what what kind of chemicals is that operation putting into the earth you know if if you're if you're thinking that almond milk is a you know a cruelty free alternative to cow's milk is that actually true and if we look at you know the the ongoing drought in california the declining bee population these are not simple things that you know all, all of a sudden it's a plant so therefore it's um it's not cruel or it's better for the environment those are things that we've been marketed to we've been told those things but really if we take a, a objective look and see the real human um, cost that's associated. It isn't cruelty free. There's a lot of food that is incredibly cruel that we we don't really think a lot about, you know, and so we have to, it, I think a, a important part of this developing mindfulness around food is looking at where we get these things from. Is this chocolate, you know, are, are these, <laughs> is the chocolate that we're eating harvested by children, <laughs> you know? So it's just things like that where it's food doesn't exist in a vacuum and we need to be conscious and aware of where it's coming from. Um, and so that's the sort of politics that's involved as well. Um, and then, you know, recognizing that that is a huge part of food is people using it as activism to raise awareness for, um, you know, the inequalities that we're promoting through our food choices. And especially in an era where, you know, people are, you know, in Idle No More, in, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, we're in a, we're in a political awakening, a, a reckoning of, you know, these historical inequalities that cannot go any farther. And to think that food isn't a part of that is not accurate. So we need to also see how our food choices are contributing to inequality as well. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
what do you hope people get out of watching the film once they finish the film and, and gone home or uh, I guess in, in today's case, you know, turned off the computer? What do you hope is kind of in their mind uh, after they've watched it? I hope that people walk away from the film feeling incredibly inspired to even do small things to get more engaged with their food and where it comes from. And I hope that people um, can start to look to their own communities and see, okay, who are the movers and shakers where I live? Who are the people who are doing this really amazing work that I can support, even in my small way? Um, what are what are these easy access entry ways into the food food movement so that I can be a part of the solution. And I hope that it just helps even with this, with a small paradigm shift, with the small attitude change that, you know, this is, this is something that maybe people haven't thought about before. And, and, you know, I hope people go to the farmer's market, support their local growers, um, continue to think a little bit more local and um, that uh, all of those things will help contribute to this, this change in, in the tide. And I, and then I hope also people kind of, you know, get to see themselves. And I'm hoping that lots of young, active, um, marginalized, you know, BIPOC, Indigenous, queer folks can see this and be like, oh my goodness, I've never seen myself depicted in this way before and represented and I feel seen in the work that I'm doing. So I hope people are very inspired and um, feel reflected in the work that they're doing. And now that we've heard from Tiffany, we're going to speak to Carolyn. What kind of led you to decide to to start making, um, uh, you know, food for the rest of us? Yeah, um, so the first project I did on my own as a filmmaker in the Northwest Territories was a show for the Northern Cable Channel called Wild Kitchen. And that's where I actually met Tiffany and she was the host and I was the director. And uh, that show did quite well. We got a pretty big following, like both online and an American network picked up the episodes we shot. And so like the following just kept growing. And then Tiffany and I decided to form a production company together over time. And so we were kind of spitballing ideas <laughs> back in 2019 when we were just a little baby company, <laughs> brand new company. And uh, yeah, the, uh, Tiffany had been following this guy, Eric Person on Instagram, who was using farming as a form of activism. And so she mentioned that in one of our meetings and I was just really, it, I just, it really struck a chord with me. And so right away we started developing the concept for a future film and we, over that winter of 2019, we did have a few good meetings um, in Toronto and, you know, there was some interest, but no one had really pulled the trigger. And then we got the talent to watch funding in June of 2019. And so we just decided to go for it um, on like a smaller budget because that's the micro budget program through telefilm. And yeah, so that's kind of how it all started. And then how, once we got that funding, it just very quickly went into action and we, we also knew we wanted to film in Taktiaktak around the greenhouse, which has mm -hmm. a very short growing season up in the high Arctic. So that was part of also why we just like jumped on filming. And it's really good that we did because then the pandemic happened. So if we hadn't really like, cause a lot of the other films that got funding that year actually had to get put on hold. So it was mm -hmm. just like a real, like just luck on our end that we, <laughs> we jumped on it so quickly. <laughs> um, so the film kind of covers uh, four different uh, people from a wide variety, like you said, Tuk Tuk uh, out in Hawaii, uh, then in uh, Kansas City and all over the place. How did you kind of um, decide who you were going to, to profile in this film? Yeah, 
again, that happened like fairly quickly. We, we just started doing some research, um, some Google searches and like we'd reach out to certain folks and if they felt shy about being on camera or didn't feel like it was a good time for them to be on like in a project like this, they were really generous to sort of point us in other directions. And so we got some development funding from the Northwest Territories from the, the Film Commission. Um, and it kind of, we got it probably like early March and we had to spend it by the end of March because of the fiscal year. So I just like jumped on a plane and went to, went to some of the places that ended up being in the film. Um, and like even with, with Mao in Hawaii, like we'd emailed them twice and we hadn't heard back. So I actually went to their farm <laughs> and like knocked on the door basically and was like, hey, I'm a filmmaker from Canada. And uh, I spent a day like working on the farm and getting to know some of the folks there. And then two days later, they invited me back with my camera to shoot some development footage. Um, Cause we didn't know then that we were gonna get the funding. Yeah. So it was just really conceptual. Um, but yeah, so really as far as finding the folks, it was just a matter of that's just where sort of the breadcrumbs led us. And um, we did find some really engaging, passionate, interesting folks. And we also wanted to really keep a sort of youthful perspective, um, mm -hmm. which of course like not everyone in the film is young, but it was important to, for us to have that, that voice. What were some of the challenges with, uh, with covering such a wide variety of people across such a large geographical area? Yeah, like it was important to us that we followed these stories from different perspectives and different backgrounds. Um, so we had to just keep things really light, like keep a small crew and be very strategic about what we were filming so that we could kind of just drop in film for two, two to three days and then leave again. Um, and, and then well, we went to talk twice. So I happened to be in the Northwest Territories. So I went back up and filmed cause COVID wasn't as severe in the north, but the borders were all shut. So it was like, <laughs> um, yeah, so that was one location where we filmed twice. But generally, we just went in to each place once because that was all we had a budget for. So I guess the challenge was just like the cost, you know, mm -hmm. to bring a crew over. And also being my, my first feature film and my first time filming in the United States, just like the the carnets, like the, the bringing a crew across the border, getting insurance for everyone. It was like kind of a new, <laughs> new world for me that I had to navigate. So it was a lot, it was a lot to figure out in a short period of time, but we did it. <laughs> um, so it, right now, a lot of people don't grow their own food. Um, obviously they, they go to the grocery store and they don't think too much about where their food's coming from. So with this film, uh, are you hoping that people see more of like, you know, the importance of growing your own food and how it can be, you know, good for you, but also good for the environment and, and good for your community. Yeah, for sure. That's a huge hope of like what motivated a lot of the project and on the, like for me personally, because I have had the fortune of growing my own food and also living in like a, a wilderness setting where I'm eating a lot mm -hmm. of wild food. And I think that when you can connect and especially the land right around where you are, um, there's just like a, I don't want to get too hokey, but like spiritually it's very fulfilling and you just feel that much more connected to what you're eating. And um, yeah, I mean, I won't get too deep into it, but I think there's a lot of value <laughs> in that. Um, but I do know that not everyone has access to land. That's a big mm -hmm. thing, especially in urban centers. Um, and then also part of what our film touches on is like some people don't have access to land because of systems that keep them out of their reach, keep, keep that access to land out of their reach. Um, so I, I hope people will be inspired to grow their own food, but then also think about how, 
like, is there access to, to, to land? Is there access to healthy food for lower income people and racialized people? Like just to really take a step back and start to ask those questions. But then also if they can grow food on their own independently, I, I highly encourage it. I think it's very <laughs> fulfilling. <laughs> Is there a disconnect with people these days? Just because, you know, we, you mentioned uh, growing things regionally. Um, you know, the fact that we can get bananas any time of year. I'm in Edmonton and we can't grow bananas here, but I can get bananas anytime I want. So is there a disconnect that we have because we, we don't spend a lot of time outside growing our food and, and learning from, you know, our seasons and, and our, our ecosystem, what can grow around us? Yeah, I think there's a disconnect and I don't think people sh- like it's hard to feel bad about it really though but even for myself having grown up in a rural area on a farm it wasn't until I lived out like seven hours from Yellowknife and I realized how cyclical people lived off of the land out there like for example in the spring when all the root vegetables are starting to run low and the garden hasn't come in that's when people are eating like the little sprouts from the forest mm-hmm. and I just hadn't had exposure to that and it was really eye-opening to me to see like cyclically within the year how connected people were to the earth um and and yeah it's it's <laughs> like I can't really say stop eating bananas because I eat bananas too, you know? So it's like a much bigger Mm -hmm. thing of, of like, we do live in a global economy. Um, There's no like quick, easy answer to that question. But I do think that if you can find locally sourced food, there's environmental reasons why that's really beneficial, but also supports local economy. Or even if you're growing yourself, like we talked about, it can be very fulfilling. Um, Yeah. So just, just things for people to think about. (laughs) Um, of the four people that you talked to, were there any, was there a particular story that really stuck out to you or an experience uh, during the filming that really kind of stuck with you? Hmm. It's hard to pick one because I really got a lot out of each location. Um, I think some of the things Zuria was saying, who she's the, the female kosher butcher about, you know, existing in a male world and, and how it can be scary sometimes and to just really follow what you believe in. Like for myself and some of the situations in my life, I have felt like <laughs> maybe one of the only girls in the room, you know, and, but I still felt really driven, driven to do what it was that I was passionate mm-hmm. about. So I, on a personal level, I, I think I related to Zuria's story quite a bit, but um man, there was just so much to learn in each location. I, I know that when we were in Hawaii at Mao Organic Farm, especially I'm the only non-Indigenous person on our film crew. And uh, I spent, I mean, I'm from the Northwest Territories and I was really, it was just very cool to bring folks from the high Arctic down to South Pacific or well, middle Pacific <laughs> and uh, still, still Northern hemisphere. But uh, anyway, mm. bring them down to Hawaii and, um, just have them have a chance to connect with each other and talk about their ancestral practices and their farming practices and their harvesting practices. There's a interesting connection between the Inuit and the high Arctic and the people in Hawaii because they're both ocean people. Um, so it was just really cool to watch that interaction. Has um, the pandemic, you know, COVID caused, has it shown us the importance of people having access to, to things like healthy food or food that they can grow themselves without having to go to the grocery store and possibly risking exposure? Yeah, there's, yeah, exposure, supply chains, even the way that some of the farms um, maybe don't treat their workers that well, or their, their living conditions are substandard, which 
also creates like more opportunity for the virus to spread. So there's real ethical issues there. Um, I think the pandemic opened a lot of people's eyes to how fragile our current system is where you have these monocultures and you have these big systems. And like, once you pull, pull a peg out of this, this big machine, it doesn't adapt so quickly because it's, it's like a big monoculture, you know, and like mm -hmm. diversity is what strengthens things. And so we need more diversity. And uh, I think the pandemic has given everyone on the earth, really, like it's crazy how global it really is, but just <laughs> a minute to take a step back and ask ourselves how we can maybe be living differently going forward into like a post pandemic world. And so in that sense, I think the timing of the film is quite interesting. Like we didn't, we, we filmed before the pandemic was happening, but we were cutting it in post-production during the pandemic. And uh, yeah, I think some of the themes are very timely of like how, what can we learn from like how things used to be done? And then also mm -hmm. as a society, how we interact with each other that maybe we can change some of our practices and and be healthier and be stronger and be more prepared for adaptability. Um, you mentioned that you did, you were able to at least get the filming done before the pandemic hit, but did the pandemic cause any kind of uh, hiccups or anything like that in the process of editing and kind of distributing uh, the film? Yeah, <laughs> it was, it was, <laughs> so with Wild Kitchen and some of my other projects, I actually was also the editor. And so this was my first time working with an editor. So even there was like a learning curve of how to, you know, collaborate with someone. And mm -hmm. then with the pandemic, it all went virtual. So, and also our editor has two kids who are now being homeschooled and, and like his, <laughs> his time just got mm -hmm. less. So slowed down. I thought the film would be done sooner basically, but it, <laughs> it just had to be that way. Mm -hmm. But also I think because I hadn't done a film before, like it was hard. It was a lot of hours on Zoom, which can get very tiring. <laughs> and then a lot of just like trying to navigate like edits on a timeline, which in, unless you're in the room with someone, like it's just really tough. So that that was hard, but I think because I had nothing to compare it to, I just put my head down and kept working and made the most of it. So maybe if I had more experience, like sitting in a cushy editing suite, <laughs> <laughs> but I've never had that experience. So it was just like, okay, well, this is how we're doing it. So. <laughs> and um, the last question is just uh, for people, it's coming out to think May 6th, it's premiering. Um, mm -hmm. How can people find it if they want to watch it, if they want to learn more about it? Uh, we're on social media or website. Yeah. So it's premiering at DOXA um, May 6th to the 16th, which is a Vancouver-based festival, but because of COVID, it's virtual and it's actually geo-blocked to all of Canada. So it's kind of exciting because now folks from all over Canada can check out the film and the tickets, there's tickets at, on the DOCSA website. And we also have a link on our film website, which is foodfortherestofus.org. And uh, so along with tickets, there's also um, a little bit of information about the characters in our film and some of the organizations that are associated with. And we've posted a couple um, farming tutorials for people who want to try to start farming more from the lens of the Northwest Territories where there's mm -hmm. like less fertile soil and some other challenges. But I think, you know, like there's a worm composting tutorial. So anyone anywhere could start <laughs> worm composting. Um, but yeah, so it's like, there's a lot on the website beyond just talking about the film, if folks want to check that out. And then we're on Instagram and Facebook as well. Um, food for the rest of us. So. I hope you enjoyed those two interviews, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. 
You can also visit my website. We will find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to CanadaEHX.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month, just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, Diane Wade, Lorianne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.